Take ORFM Dunedin with you wherever you go with podcasts and streaming of primo local content. Download the accessmedia.nz app for free from Google Play and the Apple App Store. This programme was first broadcast on ORFM Dunedin and made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. I'm Claire Finlayson, Programme Director of the Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival. The 2019 festival recording that you're about to hear was brought to you with funding from the Dunedin UNESCO City of Literature and with the support of ORFM. This session, John Boyne, was chaired by Marjala Cullinane and presented by the University Bookshop with the support from Culture Island and the University of Otago's Centre for Irish and Scottish Studies. Enjoy. Tenakotu, Tenakotu, Tenakotu Katua. Kade Mila Foltereev. A very, very warm welcome to you all. My name is Magella Cullinan, and it is my great pleasure to chair tonight's event, which is presented by the University Bookshop and supported by Culture Ireland. Just before we get the show on the road, uh, just a few housekeeping things. Uh, bathrooms are through the exit, down the hall, and keep right. There's also some signs to show you. Um, fire exits, just here and here, and also up at the back. Um, please turn your phone on to silent. And just to let you know in advance, and I will remind you again at the end, um, you will need to exit this session before the next session begins. There will be about 10 minutes for questions uh, at the end, so if you have any burning questions to ask John, please feel free. There, I think, is be, probably be a roaming mic. Um, so without further ado, please let me introduce our guest for tonight, John. John was born in Dublin and studied English literature at Trinity College and creative writing at the University of East Anglia, where he now offers a scholarship to Irish students undertaking the master's programme. He has published 11 novels for adults, six for young readers, including The Boy in the Striped Pyjamas, which was a New York Times number one bestseller, and adapted for a feature film, a play, a ballet and an opera, and sold about 10 million copies worldwide. In 2012, he was awarded the Hennessy Literary Hall of Fame Award for his body of work. He's also won three Irish Book Awards, and many international literary awards, including the K. Lear Award for Novel of the Year in Spain and the Gustav Heinemann Peace Prize in Germany. In 2015, he was awarded an honorary doctorate of letters from the University of East Anglia. His novels have been published in over 50 languages. His latest, which we'll talk about tonight, include his novel A Ladder to the Sky and for younger readers, my brother's name is Jessica. Can you please give a very warm Dunedin welcome to John Boyne? Thank you. So, I was, John, I was just talking to you before. This is not your first time in New Zealand, but uh, your first time in Dunedin. It's my first time, yes. Firstly, uh, good evening. Thank you all for, for coming out. Uh, it's my... Third time to New Zealand, but my first time in Dunedin. Yes. Right, and impressions? <laughs> uh, 
it's easily, of the four cities now I've been to in New Zealand, it is definitely the best. So, right. so. Perfect answer. Yeah. It actually, it actually does remind me a little bit of home because um, even though uh, New Zealand is, I think it's three times the size of Ireland, but we have the same population. That's right, yeah. Um, so, uh, but just walking around the streets actually reminds me a little bit of, of, of Dublin. Yeah, and the weather is quite similar as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because you get the four seasons in And the people are equally beautiful. Yes, <laughs> yes. Given all the right answers. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Um, the sheer breadth of your writing is quite impressive. Um, you've written about Crippen, the Crippen murder in, in London in the 1910s, uh, about a priest in the history of loneliness. Uh, of course, uh, most of you will be uh, familiar with uh, John's most famous book, The Boy with the Striped Pajamas, about a young German boy, um, which is utterly heartbreaking. The New Zealander uh, listener described your novel, The Hearts and Visible Furies, as a funny, ambitious novel about growing up gay in Ireland. You've also written a ghost story in This House is Haunted. And The Guardian also described your recent book, A Ladder in the Sky, as deliciously dark. So part of my remit tonight is to find out how much fun, and I'm assuming you did have some fun, creating the charismatic, fiercely Machiavellian, devishly handsome psychopath, Morris Swift. Well, it's an autobiography of sorts. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it, 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 was, it was a lot of fun to write. It wasn't a lot of fun to experience in real life, uh, which was where the story came from in its first place. Um, about, it, it started about, um, I guess it started about seven years ago, really, this novel, one way or another, uh, with a, a, a chap that I met at a, an event in Dublin, um, in Trinity College, and uh, who seemed like a very nice fellow and um, came up to me one evening and said he wanted to, you know, he hoped to be a writer, and he was a fan of my books, and uh, he said all the right things, basically, to, to, to flatter me, and uh, we ended up forming a friendship over, over a number of years that started to become, I felt, um, somewhat, uh, it wasn't really built in the way that a friendship should be built, I think, uh, from both of our sides. I don't think I was completely innocent in the, in the, um, in the affair, so to speak, and um, this was a person who, who desperately wanted to be a writer and had talent, actually. Um, but I, I started to realize that most of our relationship was built around me kind of introducing him to people or, you know, finding ways to get him grants or um, basically kind of giving him a leg up into the industry. And it kind of came to a head one evening when um, he said to me he was going over to London to meet... Uh, he, in fact, did get one book published and he was going over to London to meet his editor, and I was, already, I was at the point where I was feeling a little bit suspicious of everything that had been going on for a couple of years, and, um, and I just said to him, as people do, you know, where are you staying in London? And he said, well, I'm staying with, I'm going to stay with my editor. And I'd never heard of such a thing, you know, and I've, been, I've had the same editor for like 20 years. And, He's never and, invited you to his well, house. Well, I've been to his house for dinner, but I haven't like stayed in his guest room. And, <laughs> um, and I said, oh, that's strange. I said, you know, you're not staying in a hotel. And he said, no, if, I figure if I stay with my editor and I get really good friends with her, and particularly good friends with her children, then I'll never get dropped. And in that moment, I just went, oh. <laughs> you know, and lots of people have been telling me for a while that, that 
this was a quite a manipulative person. And in that moment, sort of the, the penny dropped. And anyway, to cut a long story short, eventually it led me to the character of Morris in this book, where uh, I was always a big fan of the talented Mr. Ripley books. Yeah, it's a great book. Those five books by Patricia Highsmith. And um, I just had this idea of trying to do a kind of Ripley, but in writing. You know, a young man who has talent... Uh, he's not absolutely not untalented, but in this case, in the case of the character in the book, has no imagination. So he can't come up with his own stories. So his idea is to attach himself to more powerful people or to find people to steal stories from in order to, to build his career because the only important thing to him is it's not just being a writer, it's being a famous writer. That's what matters to him. So it was different to books I've written before, and I think usually, I sometimes think that books are written almost in... Um, in response to the previous one. You don't want to repeat yourself. You try something different. Mm-hmm. And so I just started off with this, this, this guy, and I thought, I wonder how bad I can make him. I wonder how malevolent I can make him and still kind of keep the reader on his, if not on his side, wanting him to, to do more and more bad things. When you read the Ripley books, you don't really want him to get caught because you, want to, you, don't, you, know, you don't approve of the things he does, but, but you do want to see how, how much worse he can get. You know, when you read, like, Hannibal Lecter, you, you want him to keep eating people, you know? <laughs> you don't want him to be a vegetarian, you, to be a vegetarian you, you know? <laughs> Hannibal, I'm now a vegetarian. And, uh, the, the, the whole novel just is blown then. So I wanted to see how far I could take him and still, if not keep the reader on his side, at least not want the reader to see him sort of, you know, you know, crushed by a piano falling out of the sky or something. Yeah. Speaking of the Ripley character, because yeah. about the same time that the, the book came out, there was that big scandal about the crime writer, A.J. Oh, yeah, yeah. Finn, who right. had sort of invented lots of things about his, about his life. And yeah. w- were you ever asked, well, was it him? You oh, I, I was asked lo- by lots of people, but um, I had never heard of A.J. Finn um, until uh, like a, a month or two before that scandal happened, and the book was already out six months. Um, so, no, it wasn't him but, uh, at all, but I think people felt it was based on him, but <laughs> the timeline just doesn't, wouldn't make sense. The book yeah. was already out. yeah. Um, no, the person it was based on was... Sorry, your next question. <laughs> I'm I, I not even going to ask because I don't think I get an answer. No, you wouldn't. <laughs> no. Um, so writers writing about other writers. Yeah. Um, for a long time, it seemed like that was a big no-no. What, what do you think changed? Because yeah, something I mean, has is, definitely changed. Yeah, it, there's it, more it is, and more coming out. It is yeah. something that, that in the past... Publishing people have said, you know, that people don't want to read about writers. But um, I haven't really written about writers in, in all the, you know, the 17 books, if you combine the two. So I think it's not unreasonable that I would eventually. And I don't think it's, even though this book is set in the publishing industry, uh, it's not just about publishing. Uh, you know, it's a book about ambition and about what we will do to achieve our goals in life and how, you know, how, how far we will go. And I think it, it applies probably to, to any industry. But in terms of writers writing about writing, I guess over 20 years, I've, you know, I've, I've seen a lot, I've met a lot of people, I've been at a lot of festivals, and there's a lot of stories. That, like everybody who's lived any kind of life, you know, in your own, in your own jobs, you, you have stories from, from it. So I tried to get as many of those in as possible, just all the, all the weird little things that happen. You know, say if you've got like two or three writers sitting backstage and then the moderator comes in beforehand and says, who wants to read first? You know, and then everybody looks at each other and goes, well, who's the star? You know, and, um, That's right. Okay. And it's, it's all those little moments and the people who will jump in on those. Or um, 
there's just there's lots of little, little fun moments in it, I think. And I did have fun with that. You know, it's 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 not trying to bite the hand that feeds me. It's uh, it's a loving satire, I think, because actually I think the publishing industry is 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 very honourable and it's full of amazing people. Um, but you can have a little bit of fun with it. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned that it was uh, a novel about ambition, and I, w- I will get to that later. Um, but what I was quite interested in is, um, you're probably familiar with the writer Joseph Campbell, who wrote uh, The Hero of a Thousand uh, Faces. And he argued that most popular stories, even over thousands of years across cultures, shared a specific formula. Um, at the heart of this, of your novel, at least as I interpret it, is the idea of what is original and of literary ownership. Yeah. And is there such a thing as an original ideal? I mean in the sense of, aren't, aren't, aren't all writers magpies? And as such, is Mars so bad, really, you know? Um, well, I mean, there, there, there is... I, I don't really believe in the idea that there are only sort of the seven plots, you know, and that you can only write those, and people are always repeating them. Um, everybody who writes a novel is coming to it with their own ideas, their own inventions, their own characters. Uh, and even if they pick up on themes from other books, it's... It's still, it's still your own thing. So um, I've never really bought that. I think, you know, I, I read a lot. I'm sure you all read a lot. And I'm, you know, every book I read is, is new and different. And uh, I was just reading a, a review before I got here um, in the Irish Times from today about the new Mark Haddon novel, you know, who wrote The Curious Incident. And, um, and it's based on Shakespeare's Pericles, which was itself based on um, Agamemnon, I think. And... Um, so in, in that way, you know, people sometimes take ideas and update them or you know, find a new way to tell reinterpret them. Reinterpret them. Yeah, reinterpret yeah. them. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, in terms of the literary ownership, literary ownership is really at the center of this in terms of who owns stories. Like if, if we're sitting backstage and you tell me something that happened to you today, but you haven't written it down, do I have the right to, t- to, to take that story? If it's something amazing that happens, something really interesting, do I have the right to write that down? And it's... There's no, there's no yes or no answer to that. You know, I, I kind of think of it as that if a, if a family member or a really close friend told me something very personal that was happening to them, then I would think that's me being told as, as a friend, as a family member. So that's kind of off limits. But if a stranger tells me something um, that's happened to them and they haven't, then I don't see why, you know, you can't use that. Uh, and Morris so, does, too. And Morris does. And, and, you know, yeah. several times in the book, Morris is asked is challenged by people on his actions, on the things that he does. Yeah. And he puts up a pretty good defense for himself. And that's me, as the writer, trying to take his part, really, and say, well, what is wrong with that, really? You know, in the first, the first section of the book, really, is a, is a little bit based on my, my friendship with the person I was talking about. The first section is, uh, well, it's a very elderly man um, uh, in his like, sort of 80s who is a, um, a writer who, who takes on this Mar- Morris boy as his kind of PA, uh, on, a, on a European book tour. And Eric, the older man, reveals a story over these eight cities of a book tour to Morris. I think there's a case to be made that he actually wants to reveal this. He's been waiting all his life. It's a huge weight to, on him. Yeah, to get yeah. this story um, you know, off his shoulders. And he tells it to this guy who was sitting there in front of him all the time, scribbling away on a notepad, so, and wants to be a writer. So I think it's reasonable that when Morris says to Eric, you know, look, you told me the story, and I'm sitting there writing it. You know, I mean, what do you want from me? Um, so it's, 
I think it, it, there's no kind of definitive answer to it. it. It changes from person to person. In Morris's case, there are, I don't think he's too bad in the first section. He's bad in the second section. And he gets um, worse. And he gets worse. But, mm-hmm. you know, there are, there are, you know, killing people isn't great, let's face it. You know, but um, in the first section, I don't think he's too bad. I, what he doesn't have is self-belief, you see, because yeah. he's only 20. And he still at 20 thinks, I'm not going to be able to make it unless I pull strings, unless I attach myself. When I was 20, I didn't feel that at all. I felt the world is my oyster. You know, I thought, mm. right, it's out there for the taking. Um, I think Morris actually lacks a lot of self-belief. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a part, we were talking about the earlier character, the older man, the old German man, Eric Ackerman, and he advises Morris, he says, the more you read, the more you write, the more the ideas will appear. Um, and yet Morris has this massive problem coming up with ideas. Why do you think he's got such a problem? Is he, is he too impatient, as you were saying, like he's 20? And um, yeah, I, I think he, he's, he's not mature enough. He doesn't understand the craft of writing. He wants everything now. He's not willing to put in any sort of apprenticeship. Um, and, you know, there are people like that, I think, in every industry. And uh, I, I remember, like, a few years ago teaching uh, a, a course, a writing course, to university students in England. And there was 12 students. And on the first day, the first thing I asked them, I worked my way around the room, and I asked all of them, what are you reading at the moment? And three out of the 12 people were reading books. And the other nine said they hadn't read a book in about six months or something because they had their, you know, band practice or rugby or whatever it was they were doing. And then I said to them, how many of you 10 years from now would like to be a full-time writer? And they all put their hands up. You know, and I thought, like, do you, when I said to them, do you, do you, not, see the, do you not see the difference of what's going on there? Yeah. You know? And, and it's, it's, it's like this need to um, succeed instantly. And sometimes when we see um, writers who have massive hits on their first novel, it gives people the idea that that's what happens every time. I mean, when that happens, or somebody gets like a million pound advance or something, the reason it's in the news is because it's rare. It's not because yeah. it's common. And, and, and then, but new people coming into it think that's what's supposed to happen. You know, and I, I've seen people maybe on a debut novel complain that they didn't get, you know, enough publicity or they didn't get this, that, or the other. And you go, but you got your novel published. You know, mm-hmm. like, how about just enjoying it for five minutes, you know, before... Mm-hmm before feeling victimised. Yeah, and I guess that kind of leads me to... I mean, my first four books, you know, sold about eight copies between them. It was only... No, they really did. And that was, you know, that was my mum, my dad, my older brother, my... uh, It wasn't until Boy in the Striped Pajamas came along, which was my fifth book, that I actually started to sell a few books. Yeah, Yeah, which kind of leads on to my next question, which is, you were saying about how it's about ambition Hmm. and about achieving success. And Mara says, I want to be a success. I'll do anything to be a success. Do you think the hunger for success for writers is more prevalent and desperate, sort of, you were saying you've been in it for, for 20 years. Do you think it's more desperate these days? Because kind of everybody wants their, their moment in the limelight. You know, they want, they want yeah. the fame, but they don't want to put in the work or they don't realise how hard it is. I, I mean, I don't really know because I, I don't have experience of other industries, really. But in the creative arts, in writing, acting, music, people that I, I do tend to spend most of my time around... Um, I actually don't think it's, it's too bad. I think the like, real writers, real musicians and so on, do put in the time, do put in the effort, and are not the ones that you see constantly you know, at book launches and doing all the parties things. Um, the real writers are the ones who sit at home and they read and they write, you know, and then they do their laundry and they take the dog for a walk and they do everything that, norm- that everyone else does. You know? um, and they don't you know, 
They don't keep talking about it. They, they just do it. And uh, they're disciplined and they're focused. Um, but yeah, I, I think sometimes people expect an awful lot too soon. But um, will they be told? They won't. You know? <laughs> and, and there is that kind of, there is that difference. I sound I like think. an old man. I sound, I sound like, you know, the, an old fella. the old fella from Up. You know, <laughs> so... <laughs> Yeah, because there is that there is that quite quite a difference, you know, between a lot of people, especially I guess younger writers, or you know, I've seen you were mentioned about creative writing mm. um, classes, which I've taught on as well. Is like the kind of the idea of of the writer is that you know they're the tortured soul versus the actual reality of you having having to write that, and there's that yeah. dichotomy, isn't there? Yeah, I, I don't have a lot of patience for for people like that, but I, on the courses I've taught, I haven't come across those people really. You know, I, I've found that people who who get onto creative writing courses, they are they are actually um, they're guided by the work. They do actually want to. Uh, produce interesting books, interesting stories. They're committed to their craft. I think usually the, the filtering process to get in in the first place is is, is pretty good. Yeah. Um, you know, wh- what I don't have patience for really is those writers who would say, you know, sometimes you read an interview with a writer and they say, oh, you know, I hate writing. I wish I didn't have to do it. And it's torture. It's torture. You know, yeah. and you go, well, well, you know, don't do it then. You know, it's like <laughs> the world is not going to fall off its axis if you don't produce another book. It's... You know, movie stars do that as well. You know, Hugh Grant's always complaining about making movies, and nobody cares. You know, yeah, I mean, yeah. who wants to see it anyway? You know, yeah. um, but if he, if he runs out of a few quid, then he'll. Yeah, but yeah. I think it's disrespectful that you know there are so many people out there with stories to tell, and getting published in the first place. A lot of it is about talent, but a portion of it is about luck. Mm-hmm. You know, that your book might just land on the right agent's desk or the right editor's desk. Or if it's published, then, you know, get picked up by the right media organization. And there is luck involved. So I think that kind of whiny approach to things and saying, oh, you know, I wish I didn't have to do it, is disrespectful to people who, for one reason or another, just the luck hasn't landed on them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because I love writing. Yeah, you're you know, fa- I mean, you're I famously it. disciplined. I mean, I've, I've even read that you, when you're, you know, at festivals and that, that you sort of go home and... And write in a hotel room, is that? Yeah, yeah, um, I was writing in the hotel earlier. I was finishing were, an essay there, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I do, but, but I still love it. You know, I love the craft of it. I love sitting down, particularly when I have a first draft. So it feels like almost like the hard bit's over. There's some kind of it's story out. of some yeah. messy description there. But, and then you've got something to work from, you know. And I love that. I love to just sitting down and cutting myself off from everything and just looking at this page and shifting words around and putting new sentences in. Um, it's like a puzzle to me. I think I'm... Um, I always say, you know, I was really good at maths in school. And I, I often think that there's something there, there's some part of my brain that it's like that. It just, I see it like a big jigsaw. And putting all the pieces into the right place and knowing that I'll be able to solve the puzzle eventually, even when it seems like a, it, it's gone awry. Um, but it's a very enjoyable pastime. And even after hobby, 11 years, hobby, does job. it... Job, job, Craft. job, yeah. Craft. Um, but even after 11 novels, you still get excited by when something clicks. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, I do. Because um, I don't plan my novels really in advance. I start with an idea or a theme or a character, and, and I just let it go, and I see where it's going to take me. And oftentimes, you will put something into the book that you don't know why it's there, and it will, it will have huge importance later on. You won't know why. Um, in A History of Loneliness, for example, that you mentioned, um, about the, the church scandals in, in Ireland, uh, in the very first three pages of that, um, a priest goes to visit, an elderly priest goes to visit his sister who has dementia, 
and one of her sons is upstairs. Um, he wants to be a writer. The other son is working on the uh, um, uh, working in London on a building site. And there's a throwaway comment in the line that this son working on the building site hasn't spoken to them in a number of years. And that was in the very first couple of pages as I wrote it. And I just said he hadn't. And ultimately, that's the turning point of the entire book later on. So it's, it's sometimes, I was saying to a group of kids yesterday at the, at the girls' school that um, I sometimes feel that novels are right here at the back of the head. And you're, you're, you're digging away you know, to, to get to them. That You know it, but you have to find it somehow. But yeah, when you get those moments and you, you say, oh, I know why I did that, and suddenly it makes sense, it is really and it exciting. Slots, it is. Yeah, 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 and it's really, mm. really exciting and wonderful. And sometimes you put stuff in and it makes no sense and you have to take it out. And that's fine too. You know, that's part of the, that's part of the job. But yeah. the ones that like, make the novel come together, it's, it's, it's really good. Yeah. And I, I'm going to ask you a follow-up question on that because you're going to read a little bit from uh, A Ladder to the Sky um, about Gore Vidal. And I'm going to ask you a little question about that after. Okay, so this is just a couple of pages. Um, Morris has just got published, and he has, take, he has a new um, mentor as such, an American writer called Dash Hardy. And they've gone to Gore Vidal's house on the Amalfi Coast for the night. And uh, Morris is hoping to um, seduce Gore in every possible sense of that word. Over dinner, the, din- the discussion turned to Morris's novel. Gore had avoided making any direct reference to it all afternoon, but Howard, who had returned home in disarray, having, has it, having had his wallet stolen in a cafe, asked when it would be published. Oh, but it's already out, said Dash, delighted that the conversation was turning to his protege at last, which was far more appealing to him than the lecture on the Emperor Galba that Gore had been delivering for 40 minutes. The British edition, that is, and some of the European ones. But the Americans don't publish until September. That's where you come in, Gore. Me, asked Gore, what have I got to do with anything? We thought you might offer an endorsement. You don't mind our asking, do you? We being Morris and I. Dash, please, said Morris, doing his best to look uncomfortable, but proving himself an imperfect actor. Is that what you hoped for, Morris? asked Gore, turning to the boy and looking him directly in the eye. Did you hope that I might endorse your novel? Actually, I'd prefer if you didn't, he replied. Morris, cried Dash, appalled. Really, asked Gore, equally surprised by the remark. May I ask why? Because I wouldn't want you to think that's the only reason I came here tonight. When Dash suggested you might host us for dinner, I knew I would cancel anything on my calendar in order to attend. I've been an admirer of yours for many years, and the opportunity to meet you in person was too good to pass up. But I wouldn't want you to think I came here only to exploit your good nature. Gore couldn't help but laugh at the suggestion. Many outrageous things had been said about him over the years. Thousands of unkind comments. But no one had ever had the bad manners to accuse him of having a good nature. (laughs) He glanced towards Howard, who was smiling too as he poured more wine. So how about I say that even if you were to offer an endorsement, continued Morris, I would reject it. If your editor could hear you now, he'd put a gag across your mouth. Of course, should you find the time to read my novel, I'd be very interested to know what you make of it. In a private capacity, of course, man to man. Gore sipped his drink and for once felt stuck for words. Exactly what game was the boy playing? It was difficult to decipher. Was he serious when he said that he would turn down a quote from him if one was offered? And if so, was that an insult or a compliment? Perhaps he thought his name no longer held enough weight to warrant a sentence or two across the dust jacket of a debut novel. If that was the case, then it might be time to leave Italy and return to public life. 
Or did the boy not want the patronage of a man Gore's age, preferring the support of younger, more fashionable writers? A weight of sorrow fell upon him, and as he reached for another prawn, he changed his mind and dropped it back in the bowl with its fellows, his appetite destroyed. Thanks, John. Um, so Gore Vidal, who I didn't know, I was just saying to John before, I didn't know a lot about Gore Vidal before, but he was famous for his wit, and he had some great ones um, that I wrote down. Every time a friend succeeds, I die a little. And some writers take to drink, others take to audiences. So hopefully, Never heard that one, actually. Hopefully you won't take to the audience tonight. So I've taken to both. But, so. <laughs> so I was just wondering, we were talking about um, the process of writing and how you know, it still excites you and how something can just slot in and, and work. At what stage did you think you were going to include Gore Vidal? It was very oh, hard to resist. Well, it was, it's, it's unusual in, in how I wrote it because it's not the way I normally write. Um, there are three long sections of this book one narrated by Eric, one narrated uh, by a woman, and one narrated by Morris himself. And I wrote all three. And I felt they were too... Um, uh, they felt disjointed in some way to me. And then I thought to myself, well, what I'll do is I'll have two interludes, short sections, almost like short stories, connecting the first and second and the second and third. And that's when I came up with the idea of... And both in a third-person narrative... And that's when I thought about Gore Vidal. I always loved Gore Vidal's work. I'd read so much of it over the years. And he's the only real-life figure in the book. And I thought it would be fun to have one, real, one person, one writer, who is not taken in by Morris, who sees right through him, who sort of basically says, you know, I've been playing this game for 60 years. You don't fool me. And it just seemed like Gore Vidal would be the right person. So what I did was I, I had read a lot, but I watched a lot of documentaries about him and tried to capture his voice. It's a tricky one. I, I, I compare it to sort of if you try to write about Oscar Wilde, you've really got to raise your game because every mm. word out of his mouth has to be really Spot sharp. And, yeah, and you want a few zingers in there and so on. And it was, it was probably the section of the book that I rewrote the most and read aloud the most to get the rhythms of it. And... Um, I never met Gore Vidal, unfortunately, but I, would, I hope that if he, if he had been able to read it, that he would think it, it does sound like him. He, he, I do, I think, give him the, uh, the hero's stance in that uh, he basically puts Morris in his place. But it was, it was, it was my favourite part of the novel to write, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, as with the novel The Heart's Invisible Furies, um, you know, humour is amid the darkness... And the book, we were talking about, it's, it's about ambition, it's about the drive for success, but it can also be interpreted as a kind of a satire, as you were saying, of the, of the publishing world, of the unpredictability of prizes, the insincerity of writers meeting at the festivals, and the endless array of new books requiring endorsements. I mean, you mentioned the endorsements mm. there. Um, there's just a few examples that I wanted to... There's somebody uh, looking for an endorsement right now. So... <laughs> Just a few examples I wanted to read out. Um, you mentioned one of the, the characters that I felt the most sorry for was poor old Dash. Yeah. Because he was, he was just, he just couldn't resist Morris, you know, and it yeah. didn't matter what he did to him. He just, yeah. Yeah. He's, he's a very, a very kind of sad kind of character. He's a sad, tragic yeah. character who is successful, has lived a successful life, but isn't happy. Um, and it's the era that he comes from as well. He's a, you know, he's a very old gay man who doesn't have the uh, uh, 
the rights or the freedoms that younger people would have today and looks at Morris and thinks, oh, if I was only 25 years old again, you know, mm-hmm. but I'm not, I'm 80. And it's, it's, um, there's, a, there's a tragedy in it for Dash. You know, he's not gore. He's not as famous and successful and, and critically ap- uh, approved as gore. And he's not the hot new thing. Mm-hmm. that Morris is when his first book comes out. He's, he's somewhere in the middle. He's basically like, you know, I mean, there are, there are so many, you know, most writing is made up of um, just journeymen and women writers, you know, who are, you write their novels and, you know, not always to massive audiences. And, but they just um, keep doing and it. And they keep doing yeah. it because they're yeah. fantastic writers and um, there are people, you know, there are publishers who believe in them. And then once in a while, like Eric at the start, they'll have a surprise hit that makes people realize that these people have been in our midst for so long and are brilliant, and why haven't we noticed them? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but like most writers, I mean, Dash, is he doesn't seem to, you know, be able to kind of resist, as I said, resist uh, Morris. And Morris writes, I turned around and I saw Dash in search of someone who might recognize him and pay the requisite adoration. So, and there's, there are other there are other sort of allusions in the novel towards how writers are egotistical, and I just you know just wrote down a few. Writers are all fascists. We like to control the discourse and crush anyone who dares to disagree with us. No, I thought he was a cock before, and I think he's a cock now. Just as soon to be published, that's all. And bloody writers heed Mars spent so many years desperate to be among their number, but there were times when he truly despised them. So my question, John, is are you worried that writers are going to stop talking to you? <laughs> um, and are they all egotistical no, maniacs? No, they're not. It's a novel. It's made up. It's, um, is this your alter ego? Um, when it came out, like, this book came out in August of last year, and certainly a lot of, like, a lot of my friends are writers, um, and a lot of people um, got in touch asking, you know, who each thing was based it's on. It's me. And, um, and also telling me stories that I wish I'd been able to put into the book. But no, they're not. Actually, like, it's, it's, it's an exaggerated mm-hmm. thing. You know, there are times, yeah, like, but with, like with any job, there are times where people are annoying. You know, and it's, you see, writers usually, of course, are on their own. They're only really together at, at festivals or at uh, launches or award ceremonies or something. And, um, and sometimes you meet people that you think are going to be wonderful and they're, they're obnoxious. And sometimes there are people that you've heard bad things about and they turn out to be absolutely lovely, you know. But I don't think that's different than any other industry. Um, but uh, I, I think in, in general, uh, I, I find... Uh, you know, as I say, most of my friends, most of my closest friends, not all of them, but, you know, would, would be writers. And um, I find Irish writers and New Zealand writers to be the best of the bunch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How about that? So you still have a few friends left? As I do have a few friends. I had a couple of people who, who, who got a bit snotty about it, I have to say. Oh, okay. Because um, maybe they thought they well, were... Well, because were, of the fact that the, the person who the Morris character was originally based on was, uh, was, was a pretty well-known person in Dublin. Among now certain, I'm dying to know. Among a certain, among a certain group that. of people. Um, it wouldn't be well known. I mean, you wouldn't have heard of him. But, it, but, he, he, but he, you know, among a certain group of people in Dublin, he would have been well known. And um, I had a few people have a go at me. Usually kind of, uh, to be, I mean, I'm going to sound like an arrogant, horrible human being here, but it's just the case. Um, not that I'm arrogant, what I'm going to say. Um, <laughs> That it was usually kind of like, you know, first-time writers who were kind of like getting on Twitter and 
you know, wanting to shout at the, you know, shout at somebody and say, oh, you know, it's disgraceful that you would write this sort of thing. But you know what? What? Ryder takes an experience from his life and turns it into a novel. It's not, it's not the greatest news story of all time. You know, it's, it does happen. It's happened for, two, for several hundred years. So, um, yeah, I think there was, there was a few people who were a bit snotty about it, but... Well, They'll have to get over it. Screw them. Yeah. So, there's a part in the novel which is really ironic, I think, when Mar- Morris says, um, plagiarism is the greatest crime any writer can commit. What's the worst crime a writer can commit, in your opinion? Because Morris's wife has... has Probably bad writing. Right. I suppose. Um, uh, Yeah, probably bad writing or... or, uh, Yeah, I I think taking themselves too seriously, maybe, or, you know, putting up that whole front of, uh, you know, tossing the hair. You know, the young... I'm only bitter (laughs) and jealous, I know. (laughs) I I walked into that one, but... uh, It's... uh, yeah, I, I see these. Okay, I see these guys sometimes, and it's always guys, and they'll be like about thirty, and they will have the hair, and they'll have a leather satchel that will have initials on it, and it'll be initials because it will, they've, it's a vintage one that they got from a soldier from the First World War, and they'll be they'll walk into Off what, eBay or yeah something? they'll walk into the green room holding a book in translation, and they'll speak to you as if they've never heard of you. They say, "Sorry, you, you, oh, you're John? Yes, no, yes, you wrote? No, it'll come to me." Oh, yes, the boy in the striped pajamas. And you go, yeah, yeah, sit down. You know, and, and you know, that, it's, 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 it, that's annoying, I think. Yeah. Uh, I mean, why didn't I get my hair? You know, it's, it's not fair. But, um, yeah, because it's interesting. It never happens with women, I have to say. Yeah. It doesn't. It never happens with women. Um, I find that women uh, want to talk about books, and they want to talk to an audience about books, and they want to be with readers and share their stories. Um, and I think sometimes men uh, feel that they, they need, need to, to present a, a fake mm. front in some way. The people who don't, are the, re- the easiest people to be on stages with, honestly, are the most successful ones. You know, the, the, a really successful writer, male or female, um, they're so fantastic because they've no chip on their shoulder. You know, they professionals. They come in, they do the job, they go. That's perfect. You know, that's... Yeah. Um, yeah, because it was interesting because Morris' wife said the worst crime a writer can commit is, you know, writing something boring and inauthentic, yeah. which she accuses Morris of. She basically thinks he's talentless. Well, yeah. he's a bit of a hack. And yeah. um, he is, he's not talentless. He does have talent because when he steals other people's work, he can improve on it. Mm. In fact, yeah. what he is is a very good editor, actually. Yeah. That's yeah. what he should have He's been. He's missed his calling. You know, I just thought of that. Yeah, uh, just missed he his sh- Yeah, he should have really been an editor because he can improve other people's work in the way that a really good editor can do. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'm just going to move the conversation to the young adult novel um, because I don't know if you've done it before, but you've got two novels out in one year. Do you do that commonly? Uh, no. Okay. Um, Actually, it's not... No, because this was last year and this is this year. So okay. this was August and... Uh, okay. So. Um, so your latest one... Um, Young, young adult novel, My Brother's Name is Jessica, is heartwarming, funny, poignant. Can you tell us how you came to write it and why do you think it's important that, that young adults uh, read a book like And not just young adults, adults yeah. read a book like this. Well, it's a story about a, a transgender teenager. And uh, it was something that, um, you know, it's out there so much in the, the news and in the culture 
and we hear about, hear about it a lot. And I'd noticed at events I was doing, I occasionally now will do, occasionally do school events, you know, about writing, and I see young people who are much more um, open and uh, mo- much more uh, accepting about their identities, and their friends are more accepting about it. But obviously, you know, it's still a, an area that we don't know an awful lot about, and we're still trying to educate ourselves on. So, and I, I had a friend, I have a friend, um, who went, as a, went from like, male to female, transgender, um, and I found her story interesting, the things, you know, I would ask her questions uh, about the experience she was going through and be surprised by some of the answers and so on. So usually when I start getting interested in something, naturally enough, it becomes the basis of a novel. And I thought it would be interesting to write it for young people. Uh, it's not written from the perspective of the trans teenager. It's written from the perspective of her little brother, who's 13. And he has always idolized his brother as was and looked up to him. And when his brother says, actually, no, I, I think, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm a girl, then the 13-year-old narrator just, he's embarrassed by it. He's frightened of it. He's confused by it. He doesn't want things to change. He gets bullied in school because of it. And it's, it's a journey he has to go on, really, about uh, just as I would hope young people reading it would go on, uh, of learning to empathize and realize that his sister is the same person she always was, just with a new name, a new identity, a new body, and going through her own troubles. And he has to now be as good a brother to her as she was to him in the past. Yeah. And you got quite a lot of backlash for it. Well, I, I got a bit, as before the book came out on, on Twitter, but not about the book, about the, 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 the rights and wrongs of writing the book. Um, before the book came out, there was about 100 one-star reviews on Goodreads, all of whom started with saying, I haven't read this book, and I won't read it. And I got you know, so much people on Twitter um, with kind of fake names and fake identities um, saying, you know, they just jump on you for no reason, saying they haven't read the book, but how dare you write this, and so on. And it's um, and making stuff up out of the blue, saying things like, you know, you never did any research on this, or, you know, and, and you go, well, you don't know what how research you, I did. Know? You don't know yeah. anything about me. And, um, and it, got, it got very aggressive. It got, you know, I was getting don't go out alone at night um, type things. I was... Uh, getting, you know, just vulgarities thrown at me by people, by complete strangers. The idea that a writer cannot write a story that they want to write seems to me ludicrous. Am I only supposed to write about, you know, 40-something male, handsome men in Dublin? (laughs) Is that it? Um, is Is a transgender writer only supposed to write about transgender characters? Yeah. I mean, we'd have no crime books because only criminals could write them. Yeah. There'd be no science fiction at yeah. all. Um, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me that the, you know, writers have always inhabited other Yeah, it's bodies. part of the, that's the imagination. Yeah, what I, yeah. You know, what I wish people would have done in the case would, I would have no problem with somebody saying, I've read your book, didn't like it, didn't like the characters, didn't like the story, dialogue didn't ring true, didn't like it. That's fine, no problem. Um, I mean, it would be obviously nonsense, but... Uh, <laughs> But no, it'd be, it'd be fine. If somebody reads the book, they have a right to an opinion on it, and I don't have any issue with that. But if somebody hasn't read it, I, I just, I just can't take it seriously, you know. So I found that I found it quite upsetting, though, as well for a time. It was I took a few weeks off Twitter because of just the the, the abuse coming at me, and the, the, disappointingly, the head of the Transgender Equality Network in Ireland wrote a piece in the Irish Times where she said um, she'd never met me, she didn't know me, 
She'd never read any of my books, um, and she'd never read this book. And yet she got 1,500 words to just basically say that I was a terrible human being. And I would, you know, maybe I am a terrible human being, but you don't know I am because you've never met me, you know. And I, I found that just ridiculous. And I thought, it doesn't do your cause any good when you alienate your, your, your natural allies. And I am a natural ally. For one thing, I'm gay, so I know what it is to grow up um, feeling different, feeling as what John Irving calls a sexual misfit. Um, and this is a book about empathy. It is not a book that says, you know, transgender teens, you know, let's take them out the back and stone them. It's saying, you know, let's embrace them. Let's be their friend. Uh, or if it's you, you have friends out here. We're, we're on your side. The world does not have to be a scary place. We're embracing you. So it, it just it baffles me, the willingness that people have to just jump on negativity for no reason. And I think it's like the, you know, social media, it is the most, it's, it's a misnomer because it is the most antisocial thing at times. And people feel this brave. I was saying last night, if you were at the launch, that, you know, people people would say things that you would never say in real life mm-hmm. to anybody, you know, no matter who they were. You would not go up to somebody on the street and just scream abuse at them. Um, it just wouldn't happen, I, I would assume, you know. And, uh, but you feel, people feel the, the freedom to do that behind their keyboards. And um, it, it, I don't understand it. Yeah. Well, I, I thought the voice... That was quite a rant, wasn't it? Yeah. So... Well, I actually thought it was a wonderful read. Thank you. And that, you know, the fact that you told it from the perspective of the, ch- of the boy um, who wasn't transgender and, you know, had him go through, yeah. you know, various emotions of not understanding and trying to understand. And so because I thought I think be, that's what we're yeah, doing, you know, because yeah. like I didn't know too much about the subject when I started it. Chances are most of you don't know a huge amount of it either because it's, it's fairly new in the culture. So that's what we're doing. We're asking those questions. And sometimes, sometimes we ask the wrong question or we ask something insensitive or we use the wrong pronoun. It doesn't mean we're doing it from a place of, yeah. of, of unkindness. Um, it's, you know, sometimes we'll just say something to a friend and say, oh, God, I, shit, I, hurt, I hurt your feelings. I didn't mean to, mm-hmm. to say that. Um, so the, and there is that instinct sometimes that if you slip up once... If you say the wrong thing once, you're, you're automatically the enemy. Yeah. So I thought it'd be um, great to have an opportunity to actually show uh, Sam's voice, voice by you reading a little bit. Okay, um, I'll just, I'll just read the list because we don't have the, too much. The list. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just read the list. Um, it's just, he, Sam makes lots of lists, the 13-year-old boy, um, and it's kind of fun to make the list. But uh, he has this, uh, uh, his, uh, his bully in school is a guy called David Fugue. And one thing he writes at one point is just the eight things I want to happen to my nemesis, David Fugue. He always refers to him as my nemesis. Um, one, be eaten by a shark. <laughs> Two, be kept in a basement by a madman and given nothing to eat but green vegetables for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Three, be forced to listen to Ed Sheeran albums played on a continuous <laughs> loop for a week. Four, be adopted by a family who live in New Zealand. <laughs> um, Five, call our maths teacher, Miss Whiteside, mum, one day in class, because no one ever lives that down. (laughs) Six, be found kissing himself in the mirror in the boys' toilets, and for someone to photograph it and send it to everyone. Seven, be sent to a young offender institution. And eight, wake up one morning with about 20 spots all over his face. Fantastic. Thanks, John. Poor old David Fugue. Poor Um, old Ed Sheeran. (laughs) 
I think he'll. Be, I think he's doing. He's all right. right. Yeah, he's, he's totally right. fine. He's got he's 100 million to, yeah. to. Now we've only got a couple of minutes uh, left, and this morning I was at an event, and one of the organisers, I won't mention their name, she came up to me and she said, "Can you ask John Boyne a question when you see him?" And I was like, "Okay, what? You know, the Twitter feed." So John was on uh, the plane coming over from Sydney to mm-hmm. Dunedin, and you were sitting beside a fat. Was it a guy? It was a guy. A guy. Yeah. Who was reading one of your books? Yeah, he was reading The Hearts of Visible Furies. And so there was this bit of a Twitter feed like, did you say something to yeah. him? Did you say, can I sign it? And there was no answer no, on I didn't the Twitter an feed. <laughs> so what did you do? Um, oh, I did say it, but I waited until we were exiting the plane. You know, as we, you know we, the bit where you stand up and to get your. So it was your, like you were like looking at he him was, while he yeah, was reading yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And, and I just said, uh, by the way, I said, I hope you're enjoying the book. And, and he looked at me you know, like it was insane or something. And, and I said, oh, I happen to write it. And he was like, oh. <laughs> you know, and, uh, uh, to be honest, he just kind of went. Yeah. And, uh, but but actually, once, once years ago, I was on a plane. I was on a plane with somebody who, sitting beside me who was reading Boy in the Striped Pajamas. And she was about 10 pages from the end, you know, the big, if oh. you've read it, the big dramatic ending. Yeah. And I was very conscious. You know, I was thinking, okay, what's going to happen? And she got to the end, she was reading it. She's like this, and she's like... She got the end, she closed it. And she, and she just stood, sat there for a minute and then she went... <laughs> and just put it in the thing in front of her and, you know, with a sigh of sort of like, you know, contempt. <laughs> and, uh, it was like Meryl Streep and The Devil Wears Prada, you know. That's all. And, uh, wow. So. That's not something you want to see. No. no. Okay. So, yeah, those moments happen. So I can't so. believe how quickly the time has gone, but we have, some t- uh, we have uh, ten minutes for some questions. We have a microphone Have here we got a today, microphone? So. Is that on? Can you hear me? Yep. yep. Um, I'm from Dublin also. And my last name is Boyne, and I was just wondering, are we related? Oh! <laughs> now! Were, were we married once? <laughs> no? No, I um, Well, I'll tell you, I don't know, but... but um, it's a my very family, uncommon name. My family in Dublin grew up on... Uh, my dad's side of the family grew up on... Bo- you know Boyne Street? Off Pierce Street. Oh, right, yeah. yeah. And when my, when my dad was growing up, sort of, he, my dad was born in 1934, and when he was growing up, say, in the 30s and 40s, um, it was a row of kind of basically tenement houses in the centre of Dublin, and there was like six or seven houses of these tenements in a row, which were kind of, you know, the granny and the aunts and my dad's family and so the all Boyne, related. More than the Boyne Triangle, then. It, more than the Boyne Triangle. And it was, yeah. it was all, and the street is called Boyne Street. Oh, right. And... Um, so I don't know if you have any connection to Boyne Street, but not if you do, that I know then of. No, not we that may I know be. Of. Yeah. Well, but I just not. thought it was funny that we're both from Dublin. Yeah. And both have the yeah, same last name. Yeah, because it's not that common a name. No, it's not. Yeah. And anybody that I know in Dublin that is a Boyne is my relation. Right. So I said... When there used to be, when there used to be, you know, phone books, uh, I, I used to get, you know, when people would look up John Boyne, there was only one other John Boyne. Yeah. And he was a farrier. Right. You know, and people would call me up and say, is that John Boyne? Yeah, and I'd say, yeah. And he'd say, you're a farrier. What time are you open for business? And I'd say, no, I'm not, I'm not the farrier. So. Yeah, but anyway, enjoy your books and Thank you. great work. Thanks very much. Hello. Um, the young man that you based your latest book on, did he know what you had done and what was his reaction? I, <laughs> I, he wasn't that young, to be honest. But um, <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I, haven't, uh, I haven't seen or spoken to him in some time. Um, in fact, our paths haven't crossed since before the book, uh, since before I even started writing the book. It was a good few years ago. Um, this was a good sort of six, seven years ago. So I haven't seen him in some time. Uh, occasionally I've been at something where I thought he might be um, and felt this sort of like, you know, sick, nauseous feeling inside me. 
<laughs> but, um, but no, not as yet. He's not here. You're not here, are you? No. <laughs> well, there's a Boyne from Dublin. Oh, so yeah, so. It's possible, you know. Yeah. New Zealand. Yeah. Any other questions? I absolutely thought you did a wonderful job in the history of loneliness. Thank you. And I wondered where that came from. It, it gave me a new insight into something I thought was despicable. And so where did your impetus to write that come from? Well, it came from... Uh, it was the first book I'd written which really came from a very personal place. Um, the novel is set in Dublin, in some of it in Terranure College, which is a school I went to. Uh, hmm? <laughs> your brother went there? You've got to meet her after. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. yeah stay, stay behind later. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and I grew up, where I grew up in Dublin, um, my next door neighbour on one side was the parish priest, and on the other side there was nine nuns. And I was an altar boy. So I went through all of that experience, and I had my own experiences in school of the subject of the book, which is sexual abuse. And um, it was something that, you know, was locked inside me for a couple of decades and prevented me, I think, from both writing, about, writing a personal novel and also kind of being able to live a, a happy, healthy life. And eventually I kind of came to terms with that and dealt with those issues and felt right now I want to write this into a book. And it was the first time I wrote about Ireland. And, but I felt I should write it from the point of view of... You see, the job is always, as a writer, I think, to find a story that isn't told. It'd be so easy to just tell the, the story about a priest who abuses children. If you tell a story about a priest who doesn't abuse children, but is at that age where everywhere he goes, he is, you know, people look at him funny. And, you know, I interviewed a lot of priests, and um, they talked to me about things about, like, not wearing their, their priest's um, uh, habits, you know, going, say, into town, because people would just say something rude. And, um, and you know, there were, the, what I came to realize is actually, you know, there were, uh, I would have gone through my 20s thinking they're all the same. But, of course, they're not all the same. And there are plenty of people, plenty of priests and nuns who lived very, um, you know, decent lives. The problem is, of course, the level of complicity. And what I realized as I wrote that novel was that even though my narrator um, was not a criminal, he was complicit, he, as most, I think, people were, not just the priests, but the lay people, knowing what was going on and turning away from it and being, uh, being afraid to stand up to the power of the church. So I could talk about that for an hour, but that's really where it all came from from, from then. What writers do you admire? Oh, gosh, what writers do I admire? So and many. Read, um, read yourself. Well, I mean, I read a lot. I, I read all the time. I read a lot of debut novels. Um, the writers that are of long standing who I love the most are probably John Irving, uh, Anne Tyler, Colin Tobin, John Banville, Sarah Waters, is off the top of my head, um, Christos Chalkas. Um, I, I, as I say, I read a lot of uh, debuts. I read a, a wonderful which, novel by uh, a young 26-year-old, Rosie Price, which I just reviewed in today's Irish Times. I review a lot for them. Um, I try to keep up, you know, with all the new stuff. And my favorite book last year, no kidding, I don't know if he's listening out there, but it was Marcus's novel, um, Bridge of Clay. I thought that was the best novel of 2018. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I just read it. But right now, literally earlier today, I finished reading Death and Venice, which I'd never read. Every sort of four or five books, I try to read something. It actually that reminded, actually, it's funny you mention that, because I thought of Death and Venice. Yeah, there's I, an element, actually, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, Especially with Eric. I think. Yeah, 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 I guess. Um, and, but I, I, you know, there's so many books that, I've, that we've all never read that we mean to get. Last year, I read Moby Dick for the first time. I'd never read Moby Dick, and I thought it was going to be... Um, I thought it was going to be hard work. But actually, it turned out to be an incredible page-turner. You know, you really fly through it. It's very helpful that actually he writes them in 
three-page chapters. So you just, you know, it feels like, you know, these very quick stories that happen, mm. and it's a very structurally, it's, it's brilliant. Um, I couldn't believe how quickly I got through it. So, um, yes, yeah, so I just, re- you know, read anything. I have just one more question. So you're working on the 12th novel? 12th adult novel, yes. Yeah. Can you tell us anything about it, or are you kind of superstitious uh, about that? Well, it's a novel, and uh, <laughs> it'll be my 12th. Um, Where is it set? I can t- okay, you know, I'll tell you a little bit about it. It's set in, um, it begins in the year zero, on the night that King Herod sends the soldiers out to kill the babies. It ends in the year 2080 on a space station, and it moves between 52 countries in the meantime. That's mad, because I was actually... It is mad. You should try reading it. Because <laughs> I was going to ask, you know, I was saying about the breadth of your work at the start, like, what are you going to try next? Yeah. Like a sci-fi erotic thriller. Ooh. But maybe there's no erotic bit. That's where your mind goes, obviously. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that's, that's next. I'm on the fourth draft of it at the moment. So. Very good. I'd like to conclude by thanking John for a lovely conversation over the last hour and for coming along tonight. Thank, thank you, you very much. Thank you, Madela. Thanks, John. This Dunedin Writers and Readers Festival recording was brought to you with funding from the Dunedin UNESCO City of Literature and with the support of ORFM. The festival receives help from many corners, but we'd like to give special thanks to our major funders, Creative New Zealand, the Dunedin City Council, the Otago Community Trust and the Lion Foundation.